Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. My name's Mark Hoffman and uh, director of worship, uh, elder, part of the preaching team. Um, I am I'm not an ordained minister, although I have been addressed as reverend more this week <laughs> than ever. Um, if you're not aware, there was a, a phishing scam email that went out, uh, a, someone impersonating the Reverend Mark Hoffman, uh, to many of you who got it. So um, I, I hope and pray that you did not run out and buy large denomination gift cards or Bitcoin this week. Um, if you did, just, I guess, see me after the service. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say or call the police. Um, Anyway, it's, it's a privilege to bring God's Word. Um, uh, it's a weighty responsibility to bring God's Word, and so I appreciate all of your prayers. Let's just pray uh, together before we dive in. Lord, it's your Word that we seek today. It's your voice that we desire to hear today. And so we come before you, Lord, and we open your word, and we um, just ask that your spirit would give us understanding, um, that you would shape us as your church, as your people, and that you would plant your word in our hearts, and that it would bear fruit for your glory. And we just pray these things in faith, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I think it's important if we review just really quickly kind of how we got to where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus finished his Sermon on the Mount, that was chapters 5, 6, 7. And then we've seen now in Matthew chapter 8, now in chapter 9, pictures of what Jesus' authority looks like. His authority over sickness through various healings, his authority over nature as he calmed the storm, his authority over the supernatural world as he cast demons out. And now Jesus has returned with his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he was on kind of the, the Decapolis side, as you can see on the map. That's where he cast the demons out of the two demon-possessed men. And now he and his disciples have returned back to kind of the north and west side of the Sea of Galilee, which is back the more predominantly Jewish side. And it's up near or maybe even in that city of Capernaum that you see up there. So at this point now, we see Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew presenting new pictures for us. Alongside pictures of what Jesus' authority looks like, increasingly now he begins to weave in other pictures showing us what faith looks like. And here in chapter 9, Jesus has forgiven and healed a paralytic, seeing the faith of those who brought him before him. And then Jesus called to Matthew, the tax collector, and, and said, follow me. And Matthew immediately followed Jesus. And then Jesus and his disciples end up eating at Matthew's house. And so this is the setting for today's text. And it begins in verse 18, while he was saying these things. And so you have to ask, well, what things was Jesus saying? So if you remember back, he's eating in Matthew's house. 
And there were a couple of groups of people. There was a group of Pharisees who had come and a group of followers of John the Baptist who had also come. And they were asking Jesus some questions. And they were asking him things like, Hey, Jesus, why are you eating with sinners? Or why don't your disciples fast like we do? And so Jesus responds with some statements about, um, a, you know, the sick needing a physician or new wineskins and old wineskins. And so he responds with these things. I think if we could just summarize, I, I would say probably Jesus was essentially saying this. Something new is happening. The great physician has come to heal spiritually sick sinners. And that's kind of the summary of what he was saying. So when we see in verse 18, while he was saying these things, these were the things he was saying. And so this provides the backdrop for our text today, which is found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. And we see three pictures, I think, three scenes of what faith looks like. So let's walk through those scenes quickly together. Verse 18 says, While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. Now, as we have seen many times, the stories that we find in Matthew are also found in other Gospels. And that is true of this story today as well. You can find this story in Mark. You can find this story in Luke. Matthew has really shortened his story up. And he just wants to focus on what he feels like is most important. But we're probably going to, well, I definitely will be pulling from the Gospel of Mark a little bit here and there today just so we can fill in some details that are missing from Matthew's account. So we'll borrow from Mark a little bit today. In fact, in Mark chapter 5, verse 22, you'll find this story. And it tells us a little bit more about who this ruler is. The ruler was a man named Jairus. Mark tells us he was one of the rulers of the synagogue. So the synagogues were those places of worship for Jews who didn't live in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem is where the temple was. But if you didn't live in Jerusalem, if you were going to go worship, you had to go to a synagogue in your local city or region or wherever you lived. And this man Jairus was a ruler in his synagogue that did not make him a priest, But it did mean he was very important in the life of his synagogue. He had big responsibilities. He probably helped to take care of the building. He probably had a role in planning the worship that would go on. He probably had maybe a teaching role as well in the synagogue. So he was a pretty important guy. He likely would have been a Pharisee as well. He would have been important in his community He would be a man with status and with the respect of his fellow Jews. This is the man who came and knelt before Jesus. Someone like this, he would have certainly knelt before a king. He would have bowed before God in worship. But kneeling before an itinerant and controversial rabbi... Well, for this ruler to come before Jesus and to kneel before him in this way shows that he recognized Christ's power and authority. And it also demonstrated how serious the situation was that 
Jairus faced. Our text says he knelt before Jesus saying, my daughter has just died. Can you imagine saying those words? My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Mark says that he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. That verb translated implored being the same word for begged that we saw a few weeks ago when the people begged Jesus to go away from their city and when the man who had the demon cast out of him begged Jesus to go with him. But here it's Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, kneeling before Jesus, begging him to go with him. His daughter is dead. Mark tells us that she was only 12 years old, the precious little daughter of Jairus. But Jairus has heard of the healings of Jesus. Perhaps he's even witnessed some of them. And he comes kneeling before Christ, begging him to go and lay his healing hand on his daughter so that she would live again. This is our first scene, our first picture of what faith looks like. And what does Jesus do? He just goes. He simply goes. In all three gospel accounts, Jesus gets up and goes. He doesn't question Jairus. He doesn't ask him more about his daughter or her condition. He doesn't decide to create a teaching moment for his disciples. He doesn't do any of that. He gets up and he goes. Verse 19 says, Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Jesus just went. Well, now our text shifts to scene two, the next picture. And Jesus is on his way now to Jairus' house, and Mark tells us that a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. We can imagine what that scene was like. So Jesus is eating at Matthew's house, and you've got Matthew, well, you've got Jesus and all his disciples, you've got Matthew and all his like sinner and tax collector friends hanging out, you've got the Pharisees who have showed up to question Jesus, you have the disciples of John the Baptist who have showed up to question Jesus. You probably have a huge crowd standing around the house waiting for something to happen. Then you've got Jairus showing up, probably with you know, several people from his household. It's a chaotic scene, right? And out of the chaos, we see another picture of faith emerge in verse 20. It says this, Behold a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. We don't know exactly about this discharge of blood. The text isn't explicit, but the way it's described, it can be assumed that this woman suffered from something like a menstrual flow that literally just never stopped. It's possible this condition had started for her as a girl and had just continued on 
into adulthood, given the fact that the average life expectancy at this time was only about 40 years old. So she had already suffered from this condition for 12 years, quite possibly dealing with this for almost all or possibly all of her adult life. And Mark includes the detail that she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Think about what this means for her. Physically, she's weak. She's probably anemic. Financially, she's ruined. Socially, she's probably all alone, no husband, no family. Religiously, she's considered unclean by Jewish law. She can't enter the temple or a synagogue. No one can touch her, and she can't touch anyone else, not even their clothes, without making them unclean as well. She really shouldn't even be out in a crowd like this. This woman has nothing in this world, nothing. She's sick, she's broke. She is alone. She is on the margins of society. She can't be approached. She can't be touched. She can't be healed. And she is desperate. So somehow she blends in secretly into the crowd. And unlike Jairus who came before Jesus with his need, how does she approach Jesus? From behind. Of course. She comes to him from behind and manages just to touch the very fringe of his garment. And verse 22 says, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. When's the last time you think someone turned to look at this woman instead of looking away and rushing by? But Jesus looked at her. He saw her. When's the last time you think someone said to her, take heart, have courage? When's the last time you think someone affectionately called her daughter, or affectionately called her anything at all. But Jesus did all these things. And then he told her, your faith has made you well. And Mark's account adds, go in peace and be healed of your disease. Well, that's our second picture of what faith looks like. So now we move to scene three. As all of this is happening, the swarm of people has continued moving toward the house of Jairus the ruler, where his daughter lay dead. It was common practice of the day to hire flute players and mourners to wail over the loss of the deceased. Total coincidence that I scheduled Beverly to play flute today. It only occurred to me as I was sitting there singing, like, wow, I didn't really mean to do that, but thanks for playing. 
Um, there would have been a lot of them, actually. Um, for a man of position like this, he would have hired quite a few mourners and flute players to mourn the loss of his daughter. And as Jairus arrives with Jesus, Mark tells us that someone came out from the house to tell Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But now Jesus, while he didn't say a word when he got up to follow Jairus, now finally Jesus speaks to Jairus for the first time. Before Jairus' faith can be shaken, Jesus comforts him and encourages him. Mark tells us by saying, do not fear, only believe. Only believe. So Matthew says, Jesus tried to disperse the crowd of mourners in verse 24 saying, go away, the girl is not dead but sleeping. And the crowd laughed at him. The faithless crowd laughed. They're thinking, the girl is obviously dead, Jesus. Come on, Jairus, just, you know, send Jesus away. Don't waste the man's time. Let's get on with the funeral. But no, Jesus persists. He sends the faithless crowd away. Mark tells us that he brings the mother and the father in to the room to witness the miracle that he is about to perform. So when the crowd had been put outside, Jesus went inside the house into the room where the dead girl lay, and he took the little girl by the hand, and the girl arose alive, alive. And Matthew concludes by telling us that the report of this went throughout all that district. So those are our three scenes Three pictures of what faith looks like. So what can we learn from that? What can we learn from these pictures that we see in Scripture? Well, starting back at the first scene where Jairus comes before Jesus, I think we see a picture of what faith looks like in our prayers. Humbly kneeling before Christ believing he will go with us. We're called to be people of prayer, right? Over and over again in Scripture, we see examples of prayer. We hear exhortations to be people of prayer. Here are some examples. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests Be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or consider this, as Jesus came into Jerusalem for the last time, 
and he entered the temple and drove out the crooked money changers, what did he say? It is written, in my house shall be called a house of prayer. We're called to be people of prayer. Meadows, we're called to be a house of prayer. I'm glad for the opportunities we have to pray here. I'm glad that we have a a prayer calendar for the pastoral search for the month of September. And there will be more opportunities to pray coming next month as well. I'm glad that Wednesday night prayer is starting up again this week. This week. And we'll be uh, praying together downstairs in the, the KLB hour. We'll have an opportunity to pray together as well. It's good that we pray together. Let's keep that going. We're in a season in our church, but not only in our church, but as we look around at the world and we look around at culture where prayer is as important as ever. So let's humble ourselves before the Lord. Let's commit to pray for our families and for our communities and for our church and for our world in faith, believing that Christ will go with us into those situations. He will enter into these things. I don't know what you bring with you into this place today, but I just encourage you to humble yourself before Christ and believe He will go with you. He will go with you into whatever you face. He will do amazing things for his glory as he goes. So we ought to be a picture of what faith looks like in our prayers, humbly kneeling before Christ, believing he will go with us. And then as we shift our attention to scene two, The woman with the flow of blood, I think Matthew shows us a picture of what faith looks like in our salvation. Desperately reaching for Christ, believing his power can save us. There could be a sense in which maybe all of the characters in this story are a picture of salvation. The ruler and the woman and the little girl who was raised But I think the woman with the flow of blood is an especially vivid picture of salvation. Now, to be clear, okay, did this woman come to a saving faith in Christ for the forgiveness of her sins that day? Well, the text doesn't tell us that, so we can't know that. I wouldn't assume that. But there was a faith present in her which caused her to desperately reach for Christ in order to be healed. And this, I believe, while it may not have expressed a saving faith for her in that moment, is nonetheless a picture of what saving faith looks like for all of us. She recognized that this world has nothing for her. There was no one else who could heal her. She understood her desperate need for Jesus. In fact, the verb in this passage that is translated to be made well is the Greek verb sozo, which means 
to save. Now, obviously, context dictates how a word is going to be translated in biblical translation. But out of the 109 times that this verb appears in the New Testament, 89 of those times it's translated as save. So to reinforce the picture of salvation that we see here, we can read the passage this way. She said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be saved. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, for your faith has saved you. And instantly the woman was saved. Ephesians chapter 2 paints another picture. Paul writes, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Same word. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Did the woman have faith? She did. She had had faith before, too. And it cost her every penny she had. She had faith in doctors that she trusted that they ultimately only made her worse. So she touches Jesus' garment and is instantly healed. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Was it just her faith? Or was it the one in whom she had placed her faith? And the answer is yes and yes. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon once preached these words in a sermon. He said, We must have faith to be as the finger with which we touch the hem of the master's garment. But the finger does not work the cure. Shall I refuse to touch because perhaps I have not washed my finger clean or it has no gold ring upon it? To attach so much importance to the finger as to refuse to touch Christ's garment with it would be insanity. Do not mind your finger. Touch the garment's hem. Sinner, get you to Christ somehow, anyhow. For if you get to him, you will live. It is not after all the greatness nor the perfection of your faith. It is his greatness and his perfection 
which is to be depended on. Saving faith doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be in Jesus. He does the rest. He lived the perfect life we could never live. He took our sins to the cross and died the death we deserved. He was raised in power and victory over sin and death. Believe in Jesus. Have faith in him. Believe this good news and you will be made well. You will be saved. If you have not trusted in Christ, will you recognize your desperate need for him like this woman did? Stop trying to seek a cure somewhere else. You'll end up with nothing just like this woman did. But instead, I encourage you to desperately reach for Christ believing that his power can save. Because it is by grace that we are saved through faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And in our third and final scene, at Jairus' house, we see a picture of what faith looks like in our witness. Bringing Christ to people, believing his touch brings new life. As Christians, we know we are to be witnesses in the world for Jesus, right? We know that Christ calls us to go and to make disciples. We, we, even our mission statement here reflects that, right? Helping people to know, love, and become like Jesus Christ. And oftentimes in Christian speak, we all know the language, in Christian speak we talk about bringing people to Christ, bringing people to Jesus. But we should notice that in our text today, it's Jairus, the ruler, who brings Christ to people. He brings Christ into his house. He brings Jesus to his daughter, believing that it is Christ's touch that brings new life. D.L. Moody told a story of a young man who enlisted in the military. and He was sent to his regiment. And he says the first night he was in the barracks with about 15 other young men who passed the time playing cards and gambling. Before retiring, this young man fell on his knees and prayed. And they began to curse him and to jeer at him and to throw boots at him. So it went on the next night and the next. And finally, the young man went and told the chaplain what had taken place and asked him what he should do. Well, said the chaplain, you're not at home now, and the other men have just as much right to the barracks as you have. It makes them mad to hear you pray. And the Lord will hear you just as well if you say your prayers in bed and don't provoke them. 
For a few weeks after that, the chaplain didn't see the young man again. But one day he met him and asked, Oh, by the way, did you take my advice? I did for two or three nights. How did it work? Well, said the young man, I felt like a whipped hound. And the third night, I got out of bed and knelt down and I prayed. Well, asked the chaplain, how did that work? The young soldier answered, we have a prayer meeting there now every night. And three have been converted, and we are praying for the rest. That's what faith looks like in our witness. Bringing Christ to people believing that his touch brings new life. If we're the body of Christ, and Scripture says we are, then guess what? Everywhere we go, he goes. If Jesus calls us the light of the world, then where we go, his light shines. Are we bringing Christ to the people in our lives? Bring Christ into your home. Parents, bring Christ to your kids. Read scripture in your home. Pray for your kids. Couples, show Christ to your spouse. Show them Jesus through how you love them, like he loves. Bring Christ to your neighbors Bring Christ to your co-workers. Talk to them. Serve them. Love them. Bring Christ to people. Bring him close to people so that he can touch them. Because this is what faith looks like in our witness, bringing Christ to people, believing that his touch brings new life. Well, there are many passages in Scripture about faith. Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. 1 John 5, 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Let's be people of faith. Let's show the world what faith looks like. Humbly kneeling before Christ, believing he will go with us. Desperately reaching for Christ, believing his power can save us. Bringing Christ to people, believing his touch brings new life.
Let's live out our faith before the world, remembering Christ's words. Do not fear. Only believe. Let's pray. Lord, we come into this place in faith. Believing that you are present with us, we come into this place in faith. Believing that your word has power. Come into this place desiring to be built up in our faith by you. And in so doing, it would bring you glory. It would be for our good. Lord, as we see Christ healing people, we pray in faith for those in our fellowship who need healing. And there are many. Lord, we lift up Diane Stiebel, who had a stroke recently. Pray that you would give her strength and heal her. And we pray the same for Paul Borvig for his recovery and physical therapy. And we just pray that you would give wisdom to the family as they make decisions about care moving forward. Lord, we pray for Gail Mathine and for wisdom for her doctors as they are seeking to give her greater mobility with, without pain. We pray that you would do that. And we pray for Cheeto's sister, Cherry, who's undergoing chemo for cancer. And for Bob and Joanne Wentz's daughter-in-law, Julie, who is also battling cancer. God, we pray for healing for Cherry and for Julie, for strength for the families. And we pray for Dale Anderson, who had hip replacement surgery this week. And we are grateful to you that that went well, and we just pray for quick healing for him. And Lord, we are grateful that there is a men's retreat going on right now, and that there are several men from our church who are there, and we just pray that you would nourish them spiritually, that they would be built up in their faith, that they would return refreshed and ready to serve you. Lord, in this world, it's, it's hard to know where to begin to pray. But we could, uh, again, pray for the war that's happening in Ukraine. It has continued on and on and on. It's easy to forget. But Lord, we know that you, you desire peace, and we pray that you would bring peace about in that region. And Lord, we pray for our church. We pray that you would make us people of prayer. We pray that you would make us a house of prayer. Oh Lord, build us up in our faith this week. May it bring you glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.